You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, hobbits, and fabricating a legion of imaginary boyfriends, all of whom live in Canada. I would die for Riley. I would die for Riley. I would die for Riley. I would die for... This is season three, episode two, Inside Out, How Our Emotions Shape Us. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm joyful, joyous to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam, I can't even do a pun when it's pre-scripted. I'm sorry. It just doesn't work that way with me. (laughs) That's because you have a vendetta against all puns. They're the worst. um, Tell us how you really feel. I feel angry at the existence of puns, and I'm not going to repress my anger because what I learned from watching Inside Out is all of the emotions are important. This movie is... Oh, one of my favorite Pixar movies. I just absolutely love it. We're looking at Inside Out, which is an incredibly smart, almost multi-layered, too smart for its own good film. Um, I don't know about you, where you were in your life when this movie came out, but I was doing CPE, clinical pastoral education, working at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. And it spoke to me because it's it's an emotional movie. It's very um, intelligent when it comes to like how our brains work and just the beauty of seeing the brain personified in such a way was hugely important to me at that time. I'm actually watching, uh, watching um, through Parks and Recreation right now. So when uh, Joy starts talking in Amy Poehler's voice and it's basically Leslie Nope, I, I just, all I could think of was Leslie Nope as the Joy character uh, in, in this, in the movie. It's basically the same, the same woman, but in a, you know, yellow. So today we're going to talk about how our emotions shape us and using Inside Out, both Carrie and I, uh, have thought a lot about this movie over the years. And especially as we, as pastors have, uh, used emotional work within our congregations and within other bodies that we're a part of in the church. Um, I personally have seen how acknowledging emotion mm-hmm. as part of a process of coming to terms with things can really help move a conversation forward. Mm-hmm. And I actually use a lot of the stuff that we, a lot of the emotional work we do in, in those meetings, I actually use in premarital counseling. Mm-hmm. When I'm talking about conflict with couples, I give them the feeling wheel Uh, And I tell them to put it on their refrigerator. (laughs) Where it belongs. Our scripture quote this time is from the Gospel of John. And it's when Jesus visits Bethany, where Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus has just died. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. And our quotation from nerd canon comes from inside out in the moment where joy has fallen into the memory dump and found the sad core memory that has just happened and scrubs through one of the other core memories and realizes that it was that there was a sad memory per- precipitating the the joyful one and sadness as a voiceover it was the day the prairie dogs lost the big playoff game riley missed the winning shot she felt awful she wanted to quit and joy says sadness mom and dad the team they came to help because of sadness we have to get back up there What struck me about the very first line of the movie is how it frames the entire thing. Joy asks, do you ever look at someone and wonder what is going on inside their head? Well, I know. Well, I know Riley's head. This whole movie is taking a look at what happens inside a person's head. Um, That's why I love seeing the brain personified, like we said in the intro, seeing the emotions have physical aspects, seeing the whole structure with the memories and the islands. Um, with those core memories that form and power the islands of personality and how those shape who we are. The the line, you you mentioned the line that Joy says, and the one that I keyed in on at the very beginning of the movie is actually the one that the dad says, aren't you a little bundle of joy? Mm -hmm. And so, and that's the first core memory. Bam, there's the family memory, right? Riley's primary identity is derived from her first memory of, of her dad saying that. And this 
identity of the bundle of joy actually becomes oppressive when Riley can't be joyful, you know, during, during the, the film after their move. And so it's, it's the, it's the breakdown of, of Riley's, of, of all of her norms that lead to the plot of the film. Uh, and it's, and it's all about growing beyond that original identity that has become oppressive in the current circumstance. And, and in the end, the, the identity that is claimed includes that identity as opposed to superseding it. And the movie is about moving from that less developed childhood identity into that preteen identity. And I, it's so beautifully done. And as you said, there's some real complexity in this film with the memories, emotions, and personality all interacting. And the growth that, that has to happen. The, and you're right about the initial identity being one of joy. I, I actually wondered when I was watching this movie, I just assumed everyone's first emotion that showed up in their brain was joy. And I thought that's, that's how we're born. We're born, you know, perfect and unblemished and untouched in so many ways. So our primary identity is joy. But I'm wondering, what if, what if someone was born with an initial sad memory? You know, what if their initial, their very first core memory was one of pain or fear um, and how that might shape a person using inside outs kind of uh, uh, visualization of the brain. And so it is, I think, specific for Riley that her central identity is one of joy. And joy is really the one who's running the team. She's the center figure. She's the one directing all the others. She's obviously the um, narrator for us, the viewers. And she, we kind of adapt, we pick up her way of viewing things. Like when we meet sadness, Joy is kind of saying, she's like, I'm not actually sure what she does, but I've, che- I've checked and there's no place for her to go. So she's good. We're good. It's all great. Um, and we're very quick to like, <laughs> I don't really get what she does, but we're, we're on team joy. Exactly. Later, yeah. You know, yeah. Joy says we're all on team happy. And the initial setup of the movie in like act one is happiness and joy is the only good way. All the other ones, emotions are tools for joy to deploy, to keep Riley safe. Um, but they're not really, they're not useful in the way that Joy is, that she's a central one. Um, and she's the one who's, you know, checking all the memories to make sure that they're yellow. She says, another perfect day yes. when, when the memories are overwhelmingly yellow. Um, and all the core memories that power the islands of personality, which make Riley who she is, um, are all joyful memories. But then, so we see a change that, that sort of kicks off the plot, which is sadness feels this compulsion to touch things. She almost doesn't want to, but she feels drawn and pulled to touching the core memories, which turns the, it starts to turn the yellow one into blue because of this compulsion of sadness. And you get the sense that she had up until that point been okay to stand back, to let joy run the show, but she almost feels this like subconscious need to touch things and sadness takes over. And she's never really had to deal with sadness before because she's joyful. And, and sadness says, after almost touching the core memory, something's wrong with me. It's like I'm having a breakdown. Sadness is, is she doesn't want to touch it. She's just sort of hovering there and she doesn't ever actually grab it, at least not till the end when Joy hands her the core memories, which then become blue. The emotions are Riley's team, but they all are also her. They're just personifications of who she is. And so I see that, I do see that very strongly of of having them be out of control for a little while because the circumstances are are sad and they're not able to be denied. And so that's being shown through sadness's compulsion or as she calls it, a breakdown. Mm-hmm. And Joy is doing everything she can to re- maintain a status quo mm-hmm. that as they say in Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, the status <laughs> is no longer quo. I can't believe you just brought up that on this podcast. <laughs> it's been a long time for me. I can sing every word. I imagine that would be a very special episode. <laughs> Let's start. Laundry day? No. See, okay. But, but, but this, you know, when we look at our last six months, we're recording this in September of 2020. You know, we, <laughs> the whole country has gone through a series of crises yeah. that have all thrown us into the emotional turmoil that is being displayed in this movie watching this movie after six months of crisis makes me very sensitive to the fact that I am an emotional being. You are an Mm -hmm. emotional being. Mm -hmm. We all are. Um, and the more stress we're under the, the more those emotions are going to (laughs) fight like they do in the, in our brains, you know, anger, punching fear. 
and Riley's emotions are much more at odds with each other than her parents' emotions. And I think that might be something about growing up that uh, is a kind of a plot point of this of this movie. So the if the initial stance in the inside the emotions is Joy is the driver. She's at the one who mostly is at that small narrow console, deploying the other emotions as needed, but mostly being perfect, joyful, team happy. Then sadness starts to ruin that and the plot ensues. And throughout the course of the film, it's learning that sadness can help. Sadness is an important emotion. Um, I think we see this most clearly when Bing Bong, he sits down and is sad and he's crying candy. And Joy tries to get him to move by being like, let's go, come on, let's move on. I'm going to be positive. And Sadness sits down next to him and starts to empathize with him. And she's like, you know, you must have had a lot of fun with Riley. And she's asking him to dwell on these happy but also sad memories. And Joy is still thinking it's useless. But actually in connecting with Sadness, with feeling his sadness, Bing Bong's able to eventually get up and move on. It unfreezes him, um, unsticks him. And that nerd quote we shared is... Joy's realization of how sadness can be helpful to Riley. It's it's Riley's sadness that caused that beautiful memory of her friends lifting her up under the tree and supporting her. That couldn't that joy could not have happened without sadness. And so the you know the reunion of the family at the end of the film creates a joyful and a sad core memory of support and love that comes out of a sad place and of sharing that sadness with her family. Yeah, when we get that first hybrid memory, that's what that's what I call them. I don't know if that's what we want to call them. The that hybrid, me. hybrid, hybrid memory, meaning two, two emotions. And and I I wonder if if she had stayed in Minnesota, how much longer would it have taken her to move into that hybrid sensibility? Would she have ta- would it have taken more years for her to get there? Whereas the move and the dislocation of the move kind of forced her into that slightly more grown up understanding of her emotional state because of the trauma of, of the move from, from Minnesota to California. And I, I think the parents putting an undue burden on her because she's been their, their happy little girl this whole time. Her mom asks her, you know, your dad's under a lot of pressure, but if you and I can keep smiling, it would be a big help. We can do that for him. Right. And that's um, a little bit of a, a parentification of Riley of asking her to do something that's not really her responsibility as a child to take care of her father. Um, and because it's the only mode that the family had been operating under was Riley is happy and that makes us happy. The mom wants to also maintain the status quo and connect through happiness, but it's only when they all connect through their shared sadness, their missing of Minnesota, of the, the lake and the ice and the woods where they walked, before they can connect. So they're all kind of learning a new family dynamic where where they can be sad together. And the dad says something similar as the mom, after the confrontation at the dinner, he says, come on, where's my happy girl? So they're both trying to reassert the Riley that they're used to, but it comes off, because we're in Riley's head, it comes off as both self-serving and also very unfair. Um, and that's when Goofball Island, the first island falls into the memory dump. It's interesting to see as the islands crumble or when the core memories are kind of taken away, the islands stop being powered. They can be briefly powered for a second by putting in, you know, normal memories. Um, they have that scene where they're loading up the joyful, normal day. Mm. Oh, the hockey memory kind of, for, yeah. yeah. Like briefly flickers the island, but the the islands of personality are framed as what makes Riley Riley. And so when she's disconnected from her past she ceases to be able to function. And then eventually the console even shuts down. Um, so when she's on the bus, she's just on this kind of zombie-like path where the idea of running away is in her head. The console has gotten shut down. It's locked in. And she's going to go about that course without really thinking, without feeling. I think it's anger who says, we can't even make Riley feel anything anymore, um, which is, you know, someone who's been depressed in my life before, I relate to that when you're just in a dark place and all feels like all the emotions have fled and all you're left with is just flatness. And it takes sadness to help her feel again, to remove that idea from her brain and unfreeze the console and then, you know, move her forward. Um, but that, that frozenness that comes when the islands of personality go shut down, she's not really who she's ever been before. And, and when those the three remaining emotions 
realize that the islands are, are shut off, they say, we need to act like joy. And it goes really then, well. <laughs> and when they try to do that, it's it's a really insightful couple of moments at the dinner table because uh-huh. dis- when disgust tries to disguise herself as joy, it comes out as sarcasm. That'll be great. Right when um, it's fear, it kind of comes out as like indifference mm, or anxiety or anxiety. Like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's sort of Stop a wishy washy kind of thing. And with anger, it's just confrontation. And and then uh, so maybe we're at dinner now. But do you want to yes. talk about mom and dad? As per the framing of the movie, have you ever wondered what's going on inside someone else's head? And in this case, we get to see mom and dad. And it's so cool to see an adult set of emotions at work. Um, There's the wider consoles. So they're all seated at their different spaces. It's not the, the narrow console of Riley's personality. All five can sit down and have their own parts. And what was interesting to me was which character was in the middle for each of the parents. For the mom, it's sadness, and for the dad, it's anger, and and you know, for for you and I who have gone through some emotional, you know, training for for feelings the, as messengers, feelings, yeah, the kinds of counseling that we're allowed to do as pastors, yeah. In general, women, as growing up as girls, were allowed to be sad but not angry, and boys growing up were allowed to be angry but not sad it makes sense that those would be the the emotions that are in those spots whether or not the the individual would want them there mm-hmm. um and and um as i mentioned before do, doing premarital counseling with the with emotions i'll often say the emotion that we think we're feeling might not be the one we're actually feeling because we weren't allowed to feel that one as a child and so it comes out sideways um, so if so, if a woman is actually angry, it might present as sadness, and if a man is actually sad, it might present as anger, just because of the way. Again, I'm speaking in generalities here, but yeah, um, and I can sense that in, in my own life. It's, oh, it's, absolutely. It's much easier for me to access anger than it is to access sadness. And when I am sad, it might come out as as gruff or mm. or confrontational. Um, but what it really is is a protectiveness. Right. Um, and so when I think about my own, you know, makeup of where would those five emotions sit, I, I have to take a really hard look and think, okay, maybe I am more like the dad than I think I am. Mm. Because I really do have to work hard, you know, in dealings with my children mm-hmm. to not be reactive, but to be responsive. And it's much easier to be responsive from a place of joy or even sadness mm. than it is from a place of fear, anger, or disgust. Well, because each of the emotions has a different a different response as me. That's what you know. You and I have learned in this feelings as messengers training that we've received several times, and every time I hear it, it reminds it's good. It's it's helpful to remember because sadness is a is a message saying that you know some kind of grief, some kind of loss is either happened or is happening, and the loss needs to be attended to. Whereas anger is a boundary violation, and so imagine that scene if instead of in front the the con the main seat the captain's chair of the dad's con- consciousness instead of anger what if it was sadness and what if when he hears his daughter acting out instead of reacting and saying this is a trespass on my authority i'm gonna put the foot down and call the it foot a day. is down the foot oh is down like good job dad what if instead he said <laughs> like honey you seem really upset um uh, this has been a hard move for all of you know basically the last scene uh the second to last scene that would have gone so much better um and for me, at least, you know, so if you're able to access your anger in, in forms of gruffness and whatnot, um, for me, I'm, I have to be careful to, instead of saying, this makes me sad when this happens. No, it makes me angry. And, you know, I was mm. raised to not show anger. So mm-hmm. for me, I bet in, in my brain console, sadness is probably in the middle and maybe she doesn't always have to be sitting there. Um, and so seeing it playing out with the parents with those emotions directing and just how poorly the scene goes, given that the dad's is primarily run by anger. Um, and they're all, I love that part when they're like all the emotions in his head are cheering, like job well done, gentlemen, let's crack out the cigars. And the mom's like, that was a disaster. Come fly with me, Kachinya. <laughs> um, I was wondering about the islands of personality 
as we learn more about them, in the beginning of the film, they seem so permanent. They're what makes Riley who she is. Mm -hmm. And only later do we see how fragile those bridges that connect them to Riley are. By the end of the movie, we learn that these islands are meant to change. Um, New ones pop up and we have ones that are pretty steady and stay similar, like Family Island, which looks different, but it's still Family Island. Yeah, it incorporated San Francisco. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then there's, you know, tragic vampire romance island and boy band island that they hope will will go away. And so you learn that these aspects of our personality, just like our core memories don't always aren't the same five ones for the rest of our lives. They can shape, um, be, they can change and sh- be shaped and be shaped by different types of memories, not just joyful ones. And and at the end, the the core memories, again, they're hybrid memories that are fueling the the personality islands and the hockey one is anger and joy. Yeah. And then there's a there's an anger and sadness one next to it and you I can't really see what's happening in the emotion that's mm-hmm. a, or in the memory. Mm-hmm. I want to say that it's the one that's shooting towards tragic vampire fiction. That would make <laughs> sense, I think. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not sure. Um but yeah, the the family island in the end is much larger. It incorporates both her homes but yeah, I mean, maybe she's a goofball in one way as a little kid and her goofiness it manifests in different ways as she grows up, but it's still a part of who she is. And for this period of time where the movie is taking place, those personality uh, traits and, and things that make her who she is fall away because in that moment, she's so dislocated from her, her place of origin that she doesn't know who she is because it's always been linked to this place with these people. And so there's something very incarnational about our identity, that it doesn't exist in a vacuum, that it is influenced by the other people around us in both positive and negative ways, mm-hmm. which was what our Captain Marvel episode was about last time. You know, because of the dad, you know, putting this undue pressure on his daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're my happy girl. Where's my happy girl? Tries to do the monkey thing, even though Goofball Island is shut, shut down. down. I mean, we've all had that feeling, right? Yeah, well, people people want you to be the person that they're used to seeing, and you just can't do it. And it does feel like something's kind of crumbling. Um, and and even I, if I love, you want to do it, even if yeah, you want to be that, you just work. physically can't do it. Yeah. And the, the, some of the islands do grow back, and I love that. Just a short aside in that last scene, when they're like friendship islands back, I'm glad they added that friendly <laughs> disagreement section. And it's like, yes. oh wait, because how you relate to your friends changes over time, and hopefully incorporates things like friendly disagreements or. Mm-hmm you know, being dislocated physically and learning to connect in a new way. Because the Friendship Island, the original one that falls into the memory dump, is just her face and Meg's face. Mm-hmm. It's just the two of them. That's to Riley, that is friendship. Right. It's based on that single core memory of her and Meg, you know, walking down the sidewalk as, as babies or as toddlers. There's so much to talk about in this movie. <laughs> oh, we never shared the quote about when they reunite, but... um it's really, it's really helpful to read the um, when she falls into her parents' arms and she says, I know you don't want me to, but I miss home. I miss Minnesota. You need me to be happy, but I want my old friends and my hockey team. I want to go home. Please don't be mad. Mm-hmm. And, and it almost sounds like she's saying, please don't be mad about her desire, not about mm-hmm. her action, about yes, running please away. Please don't be mad about me not being able to be happy. Yeah. Which is such a heartbreaking thing to it say. It is, that her joy beca- had to be performative and it didn't work anymore. And even, yeah, because when she gets to the house originally, she's, she's, they give her the idea to play hockey with a piece of paper and they have that fun, that nice moment, which then dissolves when she sees her room. Joy tries the next thing with, let's imagine what's Where around the, the room. Will go. And then that doesn't work either. And Joy starts to run out of her bag of tricks. Yes. Um, and it's because the whole movie is about expanding that so that it's not just Joy's bag of tricks. It's that sadness is so essential. And, and what, an, what an important message to say that empathy grows out of sadness. That it's not until we embrace sadness as this deep thing that connects us to each other before we can understand what is really truly important, what is the deepest thing in our life. And for joy that happens in the memory dump yep, and the, the literal, the literal lowest point of both the movie and the plot. Cause it's at the end of act two, which is in a movie is when you're in the lowest point um, and she's there and joy starts crying, which is super weird. 
because of everything else that she does in the movie, which is like anti-crying. And, and then and she remembers what, what, uh, what, what sadness had done with Bing Bong and understands the value of the other emotion that came into the world immediately after she did when there was only one button on the console. Embracing sorrow, embracing sadness, this, this is a very kind of Dalai Lama type of, of thing to, to say, is, is sitting with the world's pain and trying to connect to other people, people that you don't know, that you've never met, that you've never seen, but connecting them through pain um, is one of the ways for the world to be healed. And, and Inside Out is about that. It's about a little girl discovering how important this emotion is for not just her own life, but her all of her connections and for her future growth. I think that's so important as Christians who believe in the power of prayer. Sometimes the awfulness in the world seems so overwhelming and depleting. And it's true. There are some things we can do to limit the amount of awful things going on. We can vote. We can participate in our in our communities. We can work to fight systemic injustice. We can be kind to those we meet. And sometimes we're not going to be able to affect something that happens on the other side of the world or on the other side of the town. And the least we can do is like, is look at it, acknowledge that it's there, pray about it, see it and not just pretend it, you know, not just ignore it. And I think communities of faith, Christian communities are places we come because we're broken and we join together in our brokenness and pray that we'll be healed together and that God will heal us and that we will in turn be a community of healing for the rest of the world. Um, and you can't do that if you're just always pretending to be joyful when you're not. Are we being our full selves if we're only staying on joy? And I think Jesus captures this in the passage you read from our scripture quote, uh, at the grave of Lazarus, or as they're moving to, to the grave of Lazarus, Jesus knows what he's going to do. And Jesus weeps with the crowd and not only weeps, but is, but is deeply moved. Um, and they say, see how he loved him. It is in Jesus's weeping that the crowds see, see his deep emotion for his friend, Lazarus. If you think he's only weeping because Lazarus died, then it doesn't make sense because right. he's about to raise he's about him. To, right? He knows what he's about to do. But if you understand his weeping as being a connection with all of the other people who are there and their emotions over this situation, mm-hmm. then you see the true power of sorrow to connect people in moments of crisis or moments of trauma. We're not born repressing that sadness. I think of, you know, siblings, maybe your kids, I don't know, when when one is upset, the other one will get upset because the first one's upset. Where I think we're born empathetic and compassionate creatures and we're taught to, in order to survive in our environments, to lower our, you know, to not feel certain emotions because of our socialization. Little boys are taught it's only okay to be angry. It's never okay to be sad and vice versa for little girls. And I think if the way God wants us to be is fully emotion, experiencing the full range of emotions and using those to connect to other people. So let's, let's just, let's just end this with um, what, what do you think your personality islands are or, or some of your personality islands? Oh gosh, I should have prepared this. I should have this. asked you this you start, before. Yeah, so why don't you start and I'll, I'll brainstorm. Um, so I ask this because when I do confirmation classes with, with teens, um, one of the, uh, one of the, the sessions I do is, is around identity. Mm-hmm. And I invite them to list all of the facets of their identity, the things that make them who they are. Um, and I'll always tell them, I use the example of, um, and Riley with hockey is sort of this kind of example. I'll say, uh, I own golf clubs. But I, I do not consider myself a golfer. I do not have a golf island. <laughs> in your brain. There's there are no golf, golf clubs island. in my garage, right? But I do have a soccer island because yes. I've been playing soccer my entire life. I do mm-hmm. have a guitarist island. I have a writer island. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a, a family island as well. And, and both a family of origin island and a current family of my wife and children. And I think they're separate islands. Mm. Um, I have an integrity island, I, I think, um, maybe a creativity island. And, and so when I think about these different facets, it's fun to imagine my own head and, you know, what, what would the animators at Pixar have put 
on those islands for me. And and what were the memories that would have launched them to use the yeah, the core you memories. know the structure that uh-huh. that Inside Out is playing with? What are the core memories that lead us um, down those paths? Yeah. So so do you have any? personality islands? Yeah, it's a helpful self-reflection tool. Um, I guess mine are, you know, probably similar in some ways. Um, husband and I don't have children, but a family island, meaning my the little family that Nick and I have with our dog in our home. Um, I think Jesus followers got to be on there, but that's probably a complicated island as I'm learning to do it professionally and uh, yeah. personally. I have a swimmer island the way you have a soccer island. I am, I've joked I'm part mermaid. And for me, being in the water is one of the only places I feel truly whole mm. and well. Um, mm-hmm. And I have a, I don't have a creativity, like a creating st- island. I have a stories island. I live on stories. I don't write them, but I, I, li- I, I breathe them in and I make them part of myself. Um, <laughs> And I think I also have an honesty or integrity island because my my personal integrity is how I how I run my life. I want to live up to the values I hold and you know, in my job, in my life, and make concrete steps in my world to to live up to that. So those are those are probably there. I don't know if Declan, my dog, has his own island. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe just I love any kind of animals, animal island. So for yeah, example, sure. Adam sent me a an emoji recently of an otter and it literally made my day. <laughs> so the personality islands that we have at any given time are reflections of the people that God has created us to be. And when we live into those, uh, into all of the facets that make us who we are, we are living into the image of God. This time on the book club, we're reading chapters five, six, and seven of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Chapter five, The Dementor. Aboard the Hogwarts Express, Harry, Ron, and Hermione find seats in a cabin occupied by a sleeping Professor Lupin, whose shabby appearance ill prepares our heroes for the fact that he is awesome and has chocolate. A Dementor, basically a ring wraith in the Lord of the Rings with a soul-sucking vibe, comes along to search for Sirius Black. Everyone feels cold and hopeless, but only Harry faints in the creature's presence, an event that will get much airtime on the Draco Malfoy is a jerk network later on. When they arrive at school, Professor McGonagall asks to see Harry and Hermione. Harry's fine, so stop asking. But what could McGonagall have given Hermione? Darn that limited third-person perspective. Also, those ringwraiths are going to be guarding the entrances to the castle. Also, also, Hagrid's a teacher now. Chapter five, Talon and tea leaves. Time for the, we actually go to class part of the Harry Potter book. They start in divination where the bescarved Professor Trelawney predicts Harry's death when she sees the grim in his tea leaves. Everyone is taken by Trelawney, everyone but Hermione, who sees the hokum for what it is. After lunch, it's time for care of magical creatures with groan, the Slytherins. Buckbeak, the hippogriff, bows to Harry, who then flies him around. By the way, the music in this scene in the movie is great. Malfoy's not paying attention, so when he insults Buckbeak and the hippogriff takes a bite out of his arm, Draco has only himself to blame, but he doesn't. He blames Hagrid, loudly and often. An evening visit to Hagrid's for consolation turns into a shouted reprimand. Harry, how could you leave the castle in the dark? Chapter 6, The Bogger in the Wardrobe. Potions, where Professor Snape brews up injustice every class. The important bit is that Malfoy goads Harry into going after Sirius Black. But why? Also, Hermione's acting weird. Moving on to Don't Judge a Book by Its Cover, Lupin's first defense against the dark arts class, it's time to tackle a bogger in the staff room. Lupin gives Neville a chance to shine, and he does. Everyone gets a turn with the bogger except Harry and Hermione. The Boggart turns into the thing they fear most, and for some reason, that's a silver orb for Professor Lupin. Hmm. Harry thinks Lupin didn't let him fight the Boggart because Lupin thinks him weak. We'll have to wait to find out the real reason. So talking about emotions from Inside Out had me reading these two chapters under two emotions. Um, 
With the introduction of the Dementors and the Boggarts, we see sadness with the, the Dementors and fear with the Boggarts at the helm. Uh, and so I, those are really present in these chapters, and I almost couldn't read anything else from this aside from thinking about those two creatures. Yeah, well, and, and I think that the Dementors induce sadness mm-hmm. and cause fear. Yes. And it's an it's an induc- inducing of despair. It's, it's sadness with no hope of joy at the end. Unlike the sadness in Inside Out that leads to the connection and joy, this is sadness with no reprieve. And they're actually based on J.K. Rowling's experience with severe depression. Um, she said, you know, that's the absence of hope, that very deadened feeling, which is also which is so very different from feeling sad. Mm-hmm. So oh, you're wow, right. It's, it's, yeah. it's deeper than just I feel sad right now or I've experienced a loss. It's this pervasive pernicious, stuck, you know, claws dug in, all the personality islands shut down, unable to feel kind of anything. Which is why if, if you're around somebody who's depressed, don't tell them just to snap out of it. Oh my God. Or go or, exercise. Or go It'll exercise. Yeah, that is, it's a complete, they're operating on a completely different plane than, than you realize. And it also shows how horrible and torturous Azkaban is. Oh, absolutely. Because basically what we're saying here is that Azkaban, which is guarded by these creatures, is a place of total despair. So when I'm thinking about the the criminal justice system in the world of wizard England in the 1990s, what we have is this horrible uh, idea that, that there are these people in prison, and they're not just in prison, they are in prison and they are being tortured. They are being Constantly. tortured day in and day out with this soul-rending, pervasive despair. There should be a commentary on that somewhere in the books about the the awfulness of this, but it never really happens. No, we just hear that Dumbledore doesn't want to have the Dementors near the castle, and he disagrees with the Ministry working with them. They still exist in Cursed Child. They're still Dementors. And I don't know if you can kill a Dementor. One of my favorite fan fictions, which I'll plug all the time, the um, (laughs) Arithmancer and its subsequent uh, sequels by White Squirrel. One of Hermione's kind of things after Hogwarts is to develop a spell to kill Dementors because she finds, because fan fiction Hermione finds them so abhorrent. Not just flee, but but kill. But to literally destroy them. And it it requires like sacrificing a circle of, of ground that will never grow again. Oh, wow. Um, she like concentrates sunlight. It's really cool. You should, That's everyone neat. should read it. That's cool. The Arithmancer um, by White Squirrel. It's on <laughs> fanfiction.net. <laughs> Go read it. It's amazing. It, yeah, because we're talking about the Dementors here inducing this despair. George Weasley says in chapter six, they suck the happiness out of a place. Most of the prisoners go mad in there. Yes. So again, it's not just that they're incarcerated, but they actually go insane. Yeah, their mind, their minds are at risk, and their very souls. I mean, to, to think not just that they could be killed, but that their the, the a the existence of souls in wizarding world definitively proven that they exist, and b they can be sucked out of a person. That's horrible. Yeah, and and uh, they they say that that the Mr. Weasley went to Azkaban once and came back all weak and shaking. Yeah. So I I don't have you ever as a in your role as a pastor visited a prison. Uh, not a prison, but a me- mental health ward was similar to me. Even just going as a visitor through the security protocols and ending through all the like the various checkpoints into the yard, and I was I I, I did some prison ministry in my last job. I only went four or five times, mm-hmm. and every time I was there for less than two hours, and leaving the leaving that space. I just felt like it, it, it clung to me and I, mm-hmm. and I couldn't imagine obviously being there, like having to exist in that space, inhabit that space all the time as an incarcerated person. Um, and so Rowling's presentation of the Dementors might not be that far from the truth mm-hmm. when we consider especially uh, incarcerated people who are on very, very long terms. Um, not to mention people who are there either either innocently or for crimes that were they were given such severe sentences that they should never have gotten. Mm-hmm. In one of the groups I'm in, we just worked through Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and, and I watched the, the documentary 13th and When They See Us by Ava DuVernay, which I would highly recommend. 
1986, there was a new law about dr- about sentencing for drug crimes. Mm-hmm. Minimum um, bef- sentencing, right? Yeah. Before 1986, the longest anybody in the United States had ever gotten in prison for a drug crime was one year. Oh my gosh. And now people can be put away for life for for the crimes that would have been a one-year mm-hmm, sentence mm-hmm. before this particular law. So to think about the injustice of that, how a single law and then subsequent other laws that that, that came after it mm-hmm. would create this new, very unjust structure, um, there is incredible parallels to Azkaban. And, and, and I think the Dementors are almost this personification of an unjust criminal justice mm-hmm. system, a, a criminal injustice system. And it's interesting from our perspective to be really questioning the system that they have in place because we mostly come into contact with the prisoners who were wrongfully thrown into Azkaban. Well, we hear about Mr. Weasley who visited. We hear about Hagrid who was thrown in for a past crime that was not even, he was never convicted for. And then we we learn about Sirius who was in there for without trial for 12 years. So we're much more likely to question this system. Whereas if all the people that you know, people probably in these books hadn't wondered about it as much, although perhaps they should have, because the people they thought got sent to Azkaban were rightfully so. They're all criminals. Um, They're the people who are Voldemort supporters. They're the people who do the unforgivable curses, which get you a one-way ticket to Azkaban. So if you take away someone's well, willpower, if you torture somebody or if you kill somebody using those three curses, you're sent to Azkaban, or so you're supposed to be, but then there's people are using those curses willy nilly in the oh, rest of the books. Oh, imperious curses all over the everywhere. All over the place. All the rage of the ministry these days. Um, but I think because of our perspective of seeing the people who've been in Azkaban as actually to be sympathized with, um, because they're definitely not criminals, it allows us to have another a little bit more pers- um, sympathy or compassion for the people who might actually, you know, have run afoul of the law in Wizarding Britain, but do not deserve such a, such a horrific punishment, such a cruel punishment. I think it's interesting, you mentioned the three unforgivable curses, which we actually won't learn about until book four, but we assume that the people listening to this know what we're talking about. Um, The Dementors, we can see them as a that talking about injustice, they actually embody the three unforgivable curses Ooh, in man. which, you know, they're by soul sucking somebody, you are taking away their will. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's the imperious and, and Avada Kedavra really. I mean, mm-hmm. when somebody's soul's gone, they're, they're dead basically. Yeah. Um, and then the torture comes in that despair that is torture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They are torturing the the people in and um, and so it makes me think of um, you know conversations in the United States around capital punishment. Should mm-hmm. the state be allowed to execute people? Um, as we as we are as we are recording this, um, the Attorney General Bill Barr was just awarded a an award by a Catholic organization for his promotion of life. And it happened in between two days in which he presided over executions of federal prisoners. So we can see how a an unjust system can be propped up in ways that uh, a citizenry that is it is far removed from the the place of incarceration can just ignore. And as we know, Azkaban is out in the middle of what the Black Sea or something or. North, the North, not the Black Sea, the North Sea. It's somewhere. It's somewhere in the water. I think it's the North Sea. Dumbledore says uh, it's not a, in a Dementor's nature to understand pleading or excuses. I therefore warn each and every one of you not to give them a reason to harm you. Mm. Uh, that seemed very poignant to me in our in, in this world in which we are in this world in which we are contending against. Uh, undue police violence against black bodies mm-hmm. where one of the arguments made is, well, you shouldn't have given the police a reason to shoot you. Now, it's not a complete correlation to, to, mm-hmm. you know, police, but to br- police brutality um, specifically wh- where, where we it becomes victim blaming very easily when we try to prop up an unjust system. I think the difference is that um, Dementors, by their nature, are soul-sucking monsters and cannot help it. Um, and so it's, it should be up to the ministry to you know, not put them in the way of innocent people or to perhaps not use them at all as part of their law enforcement system. Whereas human beings, we have these, you know, we're all race, we are all socialized to be racist and to be 
to have, you know, because we live in a culture of white supremacy, we have those instincts in us, but it's up to us to learn and overcome them and to not have the power that that instinct could overtake us and put someone else in danger or, mm-hmm. or kill them. Whereas the, you know, the dementors can't, that's just literally all they can do. They're not really sentient creatures. And so it, what it is, is it's a commentary on the ministry for employing yes. creatures who end up being allies of Voldemort in the end. I had another, so the other creature that looms large in these pages for me, and there's probably not as much to say about Boggarts, except rereading it this time, I realized how simple the fears of Harry's classmates are. Um, it's things like mummies and banshees, like monsters, um, which Think, are Things you can personify. Yeah, things that are real in the in the wizarding world, true, but like how likely are you going to be attacked by a banshee? Um, but Harry, Lupin, and Hermione's fears are a lot more complex. And later in the books, we see Mrs. Weasley's. We see Harry's is, he fears fear itself, the Dementors. Lupin fears the full moon and the complete loss of control over his body that he experiences once a month because of that. Hermione's is such an intense fear of failure that she actually like, you know, comes out of the, the trunk in the final exam screaming. We don't see her fear in this chapter, but we know later that oh, her fear Oh, I was is, wondering where hers was. Okay, I remember that is, now. Yeah. Her fear is failing, you know, failing everything. And actually, there's another case of Ron when he's joking is correct. He's like, what would your boggart be? Getting a 9 out of 10 on some homework? Um, and he's kind of correct. It's a little bit more extreme than that. And then later we see Mrs. Weasley's fear that her whole family, including Harry, will die um, because of this war that's coming. And so I think it's interesting to see of these children who are, you know, 13 and 14 years old, they have these pretty simple fears. And I imagine those fears would develop over time and not just be like a severed hand um, or a mummy, but that they will develop and grow. I'm wondering, you know, if we had to see Ron fight a boggart in book seven, would it still be a spider or would it be his best friend dead on the ground? Um, I'm imagining, or, you know, complete takeover of wizard fascism. How do you turn <laughs> Bogart into go. that? <laughs> That's mine right there. Yes. <laughs> a, a fascist state growing in, 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 in America as we are, as we are 40, less than 40 days from election day. That is my fear. So maybe you should not stand in front of an old cupboard or wardrobe or trunk because a bogger could pop out. I um, am looking forward to casting my ballot on November 3rd and saying ridiculous. Real quick, I, I just wanted to just t- touch on the the introduction of of Professor Trelawney. Oh yes, I'm just curious from a divination standpoint and a human nature standpoint. Would Neville have broken the pink cup if Trelawney hadn't mentioned it? Mm. This is sort of the age old, you know. If 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 you are told what your future holds, are you going to make it happen, or is or was it going to happen anyway? And there's no way of no way of knowing that. But I always think that Neville got more nervous about holding the pink cup because Trelawney said he was going to break Absolutely. it. And he's already accident prone. I mean, if she said like, Harry, when you break the cup, I don't think it would have had the same effect on him. But Neville is susceptible. But does she know that because she's a, as, as a, is she a, a good study of, of, of behavior? And so she can mm. easily see Neville as, as a bumbling kid as he's walking into the room. Maybe he bumped into a chair or something. Probably and and she's using the, you know, the, this, um, when we, trying to be nice to psychics here and it's not working. <laughs> she's using his behavior to build her. Pretty, I, I feel like it's not as conscious as that for her. Okay. I don't think she thinks she's a fraud. Oh, she, but and she has real predictions. Yeah, she ha- but I don't think, well, she doesn't know about those, but I think she thinks all of her other predictions are true. It's why she wells up with tears whenever she sees Harry, because she thinks he's going to die. And she's um, right. And she, yeah. So eventually. She's actually, eventually. But like for all the other predictions, like I, I do think she's fooled herself so thoroughly into thinking she's, all these predictions are real that um, she might have subconsciously, you know, seen Neville being awkward and she's making a prediction. Well, it's kind of like how you view it. I, it. It just sort of runs into your your sort of free will, predestination mm. kind of argument uh, um, where I've I've always been much more of a Paul Tillich uh, disciple in, in, in understanding God's providence as a weaving of human mm-hmm. freedom and God's, you know, sort of God's providence, God's dreams mm-hmm. for creation and those two things being woven together as opposed to one or the other being dominant. Yeah. Um, and I, it's just interesting to think about uh, predictions in the wizarding world. I don't, I don't call them prophecies because that runs into a bad definition of prophecy. Well, and it's also, they use the word differently in the film, in the books than 
you know, prophecies are real, like tangible objects you can hold. Right, 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 yeah. right. As opposed to speaking truth to power in order to let the future change, oh. <laughs> which is what actual prophecy is. They don't mean that when no, they use it in Harry Potter. That's not what they mean. That's, that's a different <laughs> they meaning. Yeah. Glowing orbs in the Department of Mysteries. But so you don't consider these, you know, these little predictions that she does for show or for to, to kind of scare a class. Those are. Do you? Th- no, I think you're right. I think she thinks that they're that I think she buys into her own hype mm-hmm. and that makes it more convincing. And Neville was predestined to break something. I mean, come on. That is his lot in life. At least for now. But we we, we do get the bit for with with Lupin uh, showing love, Neville oh. as a as a as a hero. What a and good Lupin teacher. uncovers it right away after Snape you know says the thing under his breath. Yeah, he bullies right? him. And Lupin is right there I mean, I wish Lupin, I mean, again, we get into, we're going to get into wizard prejudice again at the end of the book when he gets dismissed. Yes. But he's the best teacher yeah, that he's Harry so ever has. <laughs> um, followed pretty quickly by, by Barty Crouch Jr., strangely enough. Uh, <laughs> he's actually a pretty good teacher. <laughs> he is. He's really good. He should reconsider his life choices. And, oh, wait, he doesn't have a soul anymore. Oh, right. Depressed now. Oh, he becomes Doctor Who later. It's all right. Next time on the book club, we'll be reading chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Prisoner of Azkaban. That's The Flight of the Fat Lady, Grim Defeat, and The Marauder's Rap. <laughs> we're the marauders and we're here to say. <laughs> That's The Flight of the Fat Lady, Grim Defeat, and The Marauder's Map. Happy reading. I'm not there yet. It is okay. okay. <laughs> We got to write the Marauders rap now. <laughs> no, we don't. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com with a new makeover of our website or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians. That's Carrie. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, wherethewind.com. Check out my now complete fantasy series the shields of Sularil on amazon the final volume seven of shadow is out now you can always find both carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for nerdy christians god gave us all of our emotions there is no emotion that is too strong for god to hear from us joy the pure and unbridled outpouring of love and creativity sadness which connects us to others and allows us to mourn what we have lost Fear and disgust, which keep us safe. Anger, which fuels us to correct injustices and stand up for ourselves. As we grow and change, may all of our emotions work together like a symphony, helping us live our fullest and most vibrant life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.